So this particular passage in Luke 3 uh, is not an easy one to start with. Uh, the reason we're not starting in Luke 1 is because we just did Advent. <laughs> we just went through the first couple chapters um, through, uh, I know we did a, a series on the, the women in the line of Jesus, but we illuminated a lot about who Jesus was and what Jesus was all about through those. So we're going to start in chapter 3. And there's this in- interesting figure named John the Baptist. And he is said to be the forerunner for the Messiah. John had been given the ministry of preparation, the ministry of proclamation, and the ministry of baptism. And so we look at what's happening in Luke 3, and there's this wild man who eats locusts and honey. He's out in the desert. He's, uh, pr- he's asking people to get baptized, and he's essentially yelling <laughs> condemnation at them, right, about the way that they're living their lives and calling them to repent and to be baptized. And lots of people are doing it. Hundreds and hundreds of people are not just waiting for John to give this great speech at the synagogue or the temple. They're going out into the wilderness to find him. And there's a real revival taking place. And so John saw his role as a ministry of preparation, preparing people's hearts for the coming Messiah. He saw himself as one of proclamation to Call people towards repentance and faith and to be baptized. And then the ministry of baptism. And um, John's message really is to to call the, the Jewish people in particular to turn from their sins and be baptized. Now baptism, it can be a little bit confusing here because the Jewish people did not practice baptism. They had uh, ceremonial washings that they did, but there was no sense where people were necessarily immersed in water and brought back up. This is something that John is essentially taking from what they would do to people that were Gentiles that wanted to become Jewish. It's really interesting, isn't it? That he was taking all the people that were outside the people of God that wanted to be part of the people of God, they, they were sometimes baptized into being Jewish, into being part of the people of God. Now he's saying that they need to be baptized themselves. And even though they're part of Abraham's family, even though they're part of the people of God. And so it had to be confusing, but essentially what he's saying to them is just your family allegiance or lineage does not make you right with God that you personally need to make the choice to come and follow God with your, with your whole heart. So this would have been, uh, in many ways, very convicting and very audacious for him to call people towards baptism when that was something that Gentiles did. And this is a different baptism than the one that we practice today. I, I just want to make that clear. This is not the same thing that's happening here as what we practice today. But, this is, but the idea is, a, is kind of a cleansing. Do you understand? They just kind of like it's a picture, an image of your repentance and your cleansing from sin. And so it has some connections, but it's not exactly the same thing. And so John is proclaiming this in the desert. Hundreds and hundreds of people are coming out. And, he, and, and all these people, we have tax collectors and we have soldiers. And most likely these were Jewish soldiers that were coming to, uh, to John. And they're asking him, okay, so now what do we do? Now that we have, we've, we've repented and we've been baptized, how do we live our lives? And it's so fascinating to me how he, what he calls them to do. 
In this image of like a transformed life, of a life aligned with God, he says to treat people with generosity and meeting their needs and refusing to abuse your authority. In other words, a transformed life in, it, it, uh, uh, transforms our ways of relating to others. People are not to be ignored, used, or abused. That's essentially what he says. If you have an extra cloak, give it to the person. If you have uh, the authority to essentially tax people or take money from people, as soldiers did or tax collectors did, don't abuse them. Take only what is required. Isn't that interesting? So often we think of a transformed life as being this, uh, I don't know, like this experiential moment with God where we, where we have like this like spiritual high. And that is maybe true. We do experience God's power and presence in our lives. But oftentimes what it means to follow God are the simple things of sharing with people that are in need and not abusing others. And this is simple words that John is giving. He gives more words later and Jesus expounds on these much more in his life as well. So he's so popular and he's what people are believing is maybe the first prophet in 400 years to come on the scene that people are starting to whisper. They're starting to wonder, is John the Messiah? Is John the one that is to come? Is John the one we've been waiting for? And so verse 15, it really uh, is John responding to these people who think that he is possibly the Messiah. And he says two things to make it abundantly clear that he is not. The first one is he says that he is inferior because he baptizes with water and the one that comes is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. I'm inferior because his baptism is greater than mine. And the second reason, he says, is the one that is to come, the successor that is to come, is mightier than I. His sheer power surpasses my own. And when it comes to worth, I am not even fit to untie his sandal. Now that, we, we get what he's trying to say just like from the text, right? That it is probably not something that you would typically want to do is untie someone's sandal. But let me give you the context of what he's trying to say here. When anybody was a great teacher or a prophet, they would oftentimes have disciples. And John himself had disciples. And as the teacher or as the prophet or as uh, the priest or whoever, whatever title you had or whatever authority you had, these disciples, you could essentially ask them to do whatever you wanted to ask them to do. If you wanted them to make you dinner, they would have to make you dinner. <laughs> you needed a donkey for service, say, go get the donkey. There was one task the, the first century uh, literature says that was not to be required of a disciple, and that is to untie someone's sandal. Isn't that interesting? So John says, as a disciple or as a servant of uh, your teacher or your rabbi or your, the prophet or the priest or whoever you're serving, whoever you're following, you'll never be required to untie their sandal. And the one thing that he's saying, the thing that he's comparing himself to the one that's coming is that he's not even fit to do that. He's not even in relation to one that's coming. He isn't even good enough to untie his sandal, a request that wouldn't even, you wouldn't even ask a disciple to do or a slave to do. I love John's reaction to this. Isn't it amazing? I mean, think about this. Hundreds of people are coming to hear what you have to say. 
You're considered maybe the, the, the first prophet in 400 years. I don't know about you, but when people admire you, people come and listen to what you say, it's easy to get excited about that. It's easy to start thinking about yourself more highly than, you're, than you ought. And John, for whatever reason, by the, the, just the, the humility given by the Holy Spirit, he knew exactly what his task was. He knew exactly what God had called him to do. And he says it very succinctly in John 3.30. It's one of my favorite verses in all the scriptures. He says, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. What an image of what life is like as a Christian. In a world where pastors and leaders... And so-called prophets and apostles are about promoting a brand and building their own kingdom. Here we have John. Jesus says that he's the greatest man that's ever been born of a woman. With many people traveling out in the desert to hear him preach and respond. Yet he can't wait to defer to Jesus. And allow his disciples to leave him in order to follow Jesus. This is a true image of humility. This is the true image of how great the Messiah is. How great Jesus is. So the question comes to us, and I don't know if you're following along at this point, but then if John is not the Messiah, and if, the, if baptism is for people that need to repent, then why did Jesus get baptized? You ever think about that before? Isn't it kind of odd? In fact, early theologians in the church uh, didn't like these passages in the Gospels. They're kind of like, that's kind of weird. Like, why did they include this? Luke goes out of his way the rest of the the, the writing to to share that Jesus was, uh, was sinless. So why did he subject himself to baptism? The Gospel writers did not seem to think that this was a problem at all. In fact, all four of them included it in their Gospels. And I think what most people are understanding Jesus to do is he's aligning himself with what John is doing. You know what I'm saying? Like he's saying what John is doing is right and good and true. And I am aligning myself with what John is doing in the world. I'm declaring that his message is true. And I believe that this repentance and baptism is important for those that want to receive and be part of the incoming kingdom of God and the salvation of the world. Jesus is identifying with us in this idea of what transpires when they repent and believe. But Jesus' baptism is different. We see from verse 21 and 22 that it is different than everybody else's. And I think that that's the point that I want to spend the rest of our time looking at. What happens at the baptism of Jesus? Verse 21 says this, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son whom I love. With you I am very well pleased. The heavens open. This happens a few times throughout Scripture, and the Holy Spirit descends down. And essentially what it's saying is you're having access. Jesus is having direct access to the Father in heaven. And it says the Spirit descends down upon him. 
in the Old Testament. Well, I would just say this. The Holy Spirit up until like Acts 1, it's a little bit confusing, is it not? Like what's, what in the world's happening? Like is the Holy Spirit uh, available to people in the Old Testament? Sure seems like it at times. Is it different that, that you have the Holy Spirit in you, as it says in the New Testament, starting uh, in Acts? And I think uh, that, I just want to acknowledge that right now. But what we're seeing here is that there, there have been times in the Old Testament where we see the Spirit comes upon people to empower them for God's service. And Luke will speak in Acts about the apostles, again, being filled with the Holy Spirit on particular occasions to do whatever God has called them to do. And so this is not Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit for the first time in his life. It's not as if Jesus has now become the Messiah. He's always been the Messiah. Jesus was already one with the Spirit. And I think what's happening here is it seems that the Holy Spirit descends on him as a sort of anointing for his messianic task as this, this kind of coming on and declaring to all the people, and particularly to Jesus himself, is saying that now is the time. Now is the time for the kingdom of God to come. Now is the time for you to step into what you've been building towards your whole life. Now is the time for you to step away from the task of being a carpenter and to begin your work to save the world. And this visible descent of the Spirit upon Jesus sets the tone for the whole of Jesus' ministry to live in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit at all times. Isaiah 11 and 2 and 61, 1 says that the Messiah would be endowed with the Spirit. It would be the mark of the Messiah. So Jesus is being marked as the Messiah in this very moment. And I think it's really important that we understand what's happening here with the Holy Spirit. What did the Holy Spirit anoint him to do? And all we have to do is look at the next two passages that we're going to speak on in the next two weeks. I'm not going to steal anybody's thunder. Uh, but listen, the importance of the Holy Spirit anointing him in his baptism. The next thing we see Jesus doing is going into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Isn't that interesting? He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. And then he goes for 40 days into the wilderness to be tested and tempted, to be offered the kingdom of God without suffering, to be offered the kingdoms of this world without having to pay the penalty for sins, right? All the, to, to, to live off the bread of, uh, of Satan instead of the bread of uh, the, the word of God. And then the thing that follows right after that is Jesus in the synagogue. And what is he saying? He opens up a scroll. And listen to what he says. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Isn't that interesting? The spirit ascends. He goes into the wilderness. He fights this uh, like spiritual warfare battle with Satan. He wins. He doesn't give in. He's the new Adam, the one that doesn't fail when he's tempted. Then he comes into the synagogue and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. He has been anointed. He has been readied. He has been declared that this is the time. This is the moment for the task that God the Father was ready for him to do. And it's really important for us to understand, I think so often we think, well, it was easy for Jesus because he was God. 
to resist the power of temptation or to, to, to fully live the way that God had called them to live. But we have to hold and balance that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And so in the same ways that you are tempted and that I am tempted, in the same ways that, that we question, the, way, the ways that we suffer, Jesus experienced those things as well. And so he is an example of how to live with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives each day. He is the example of how to resist temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the one that, that shows us how to be empowered in order to live our lives, not for ourselves, but for other people. He is the one that empowers us to pursue justice and to help those who are suffering and to mourn with those who mourn. Jesus, the anointed one, it says, would baptize people with this very spirit himself so that those that turn to him would be able to turn from sin and receive Christ and be given power over temptation and sin and empowered to do the same ministry that Jesus is called to do today. And that's what we're proclaiming in our justice creed. So we see Jesus having access to the Father. We see the Spirit descending on Jesus for his anointing. And the last thing we see is that the Father approves of Jesus as the Son. Verse 22. You're following along in your Bible. A voice from heaven, the Father's approval, referring to Jesus as his beloved Son. And with with him I am well pleased. On my favor... Rests. Um, this idea of having God's favor, or it's, 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 you could probably translate it like God's delight is upon him, but I think it means even more than that. It's essentially saying, like, um, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. It's almost like, it's almost like um, that he's being called out as the one that, that is to come, the Messiah, that the, the salvation is going to come through him. That his favor is upon him, meaning that he is this Messiah figure that's going to save the world. It's more than just delight. It's also his calling. And uh, unsurprisingly, there are images that this takes us back to in the Old Testament. Almost every action that Jesus takes and words that Jesus say have some point of fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's pretty astounding. And what it shows us is that sometimes uh, that, that Jesus really is the Messiah and other times that Jesus is intentionally drawing us in to see the connection between him and what the Old Testament prophets longed for. And in this particular case, the words of the Father point us back to the expectation of who the Messiah would be in the Old Testament. So in Psalm 2, verse 7 we see that uh, this, this image is that, that, that we are looking forward to this messianic king in the line of David who is the son of God. Isaiah 42.1 talks about this, and this is a connection back to that. This is the message of the servant of the Lord who would come, and it says, whom God would put his spirit upon. This is what it actually says in the text. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. And God says, I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that like just perfect, like picture perfect of what Jesus, God is saying about Jesus right here and right now in Luke 3. He is the fulfillment of what Isaiah spoke about. He is the servant. Psalm 2 says he is the king. Genesis 22, there's this image of Abraham taking Isaac up to be the, the burnt offering, right? 
And the, 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 the word that's used by Abraham in that passage is his one and only son. That too, many think, is an image back to how Jesus uh, is God's, the Father's one and only son. And he will be the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. I want to talk a little bit more about the words spoken over Jesus. Because words spoken over us have an imprint on us, do they not? Like what people say about us uh, and what they, what, they, what they say to us, people that matter in our lives, sort of have this everlasting, uh, <laughs> I don't know, like space in our, in our brains. I was talking to my dad about this um, because a lot of things that my dad said to me growing up have stuck in my head about myself, both good and bad. And one of those examples of this in just like a really kind of a silly way is um, I was a, a pretty good student, but my sisters were excellent students. They were 4.0 students. And there was only one point in time in my life where I got a 4.0. I was in seventh grade, and it was the second semester of my seventh grade year. And I remember bringing my report card home to my dad and putting it on the counter. And I was so proud of myself because this is my first time ever, right, with, a, with a all A's. And I knew my sisters, they literally got it every, every single time. And I remember him grabbing it and looking at it. And I know he felt proud of me, and he was actually trying to encourage me. But I received it very different. He said, now we know what you're capable of. And I remember every time I brought that report card home that wasn't a 4.0, oh, I know I'm capable of more than this, right? And I felt a bit ashamed. Now, he didn't mean it that way. He was trying to say, look at what you're capable of. And I saw it as, you're not measuring up to what you're capable of. There are other things that he would say that made it, uh, uh, imprint of my life about how he loved me and that he cared for me and that he mattered. And so what people say to us, good and bad, take up space, right? Rent-free in our heads a lot of times. I, um, with my kids, because I know that's true, uh, and I know that I make mistakes and I say things that I shouldn't say at times, I really try to make up for it at bedtime. That's my moment of time to think, okay, I said that. I was kind of a mean that was a little bit, like, impatient, right? So I, every night before bed, I just make sure I, I tell the kids, it's like, I love you. You are so special. Not special like that they're, that they're uh, like, this, the, like, you know, this unique person and nobody else. That's true, right? But, like, they're special to me, that like they matter to me, right? They have significance to me. That I'm so happy to be their dad. That I that I'm so happy that they're that that I get to be their parent. That we get to live life together. I mean, I'm just like going all in, right? Every single night to, to declare like God's love for them, my love for them, so they'll remember. I know they're going to remember all the bad stuff, but I hope that they remember some of the good stuff too. And this is the unique thing between the the God the Father and God the Son. But because of Christ, and because of what Christ accomplished, and because we are now called children of God, the Father calls us beloved. And these words stand over us as well, as children of God. So Jesus comes fully approved as the Messiah by the Father. He has sovereign authority as the promised son over the blessings of salvation. 
He is this prophetic figure who reveals the way of God. He is chosen for the task and is a unique object of God's love. All of this transcends the picture of Jesus that our culture presents. Jesus is not simply a good person or a brilliant mind or a charismatic leader. Jesus is the sovereign king, the suffering servant, the son of God. And this is an announcement to us to start off our series in Luke. The Messiah is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. The good news is going to be proclaimed. People who suffer are going to be set free. Those who mourn are going to be comforted. And we can say, for all those that follow Jesus, that we have been baptized by the Spirit through Christ's death and resurrection and therefore have these three things. Number one, the heavens are opened. We have access to God, right? The curtain has been torn at the cross of Jesus Christ. We have access to God. We have approval of the Father. We are loved and he is well pleased with us. Not because of anything that we have done, right? Because of what Christ has accomplished. And not even just that, though. That's the thing. Sometimes we just say God loves us only because of what Christ has done. I don't love my kids because they're obedient. I love my kids because they're my children, right? And God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the third thing is we are anointed by the Father. Do you guys realize that? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us, that the Holy Spirit we've been given in, this, in, in a unique way, the, the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And we can resist sin and we can pursue the things of God. So maybe you're here today and uh, you have questions about God or you're not sure that you are a Christian. Uh, I want you to just today just to be a little bit intrigued by this person, Jesus. But those of you that are Christians, I want you to know that you have access, you are approved, and you are anointed 